Uh, and so I thought uh, uh, it would be appropriate for us to look at what happened the uh, Sunday before Jesus was crucified, which is what this text is dealing with, which is often called a Palm Sunday. Gospel of John, chapter 12. We'll be reading verses 12 through 19. This is God's word. Uh, while uh, John, the disciple, did in fact write this, so it is John's word, but uh, when John wrote this, he was superintended by the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, uh, who was inspiring him, uh, the Spirit of Christ. And therefore, what is written here is also the word of God, as much as it is the word of John. And because God wrote it, it has no errors in it. It has no mistakes. It's, in, it's un, incapable of being uh, mistaken or in error because God is its author and God is perfect and therefore, and his word is perfect. So let's, with that in mind, let's read God's word, John 12, starting in verse 12 through verse 19. Listen as I read. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, and the feast there is Passover, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him, and began to cry out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's These things his disciples did not understand at the first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him, when they called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him. And because they heard that he had performed this sign, meaning the raising of Lazarus. The Pharisees, therefore, said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him, meaning Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. Well, Lord, we thank you for your word. It is a sure word. It, it, it brings comfort uh, to those who need it, instruction to those who need it, rebuke to those who need it, uh, faith and hope to those who need it. We ask that as uh, I expound this portion of your holy word, that you would be our preacher, Lord Jesus. You would act in your office as the great prophet of the church uh, afresh and would instruct us Uh, through even my mouth. And would you please uh, honor yourself and the Father and the Spirit uh, through this time. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Kids, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before. You may or may not have. But we as people have a tendency at times to believe things that we want to believe. So, for example, 
Um, perhaps uh, you had a birthday that was coming up, and you had heard, uh, perhaps your parents said, well, you know, maybe on your birthday we might do this, or give you this, or give you that. Um, and perhaps that was said some weeks before your birthday, and because you'd talked about wanting some toy, or uh, something like that, and and you thought to yourself, maybe I'll actually get it on my birthday. And as time passed, as your birthday approaches, you just believe that I'm sure I'm going to get that on my birthday, that toy that uh, that uh, Dad or Mom had said a few weeks back, uh, I might possibly get on my birthday. I'm sure I will get it on my birthday because they know how much I want that toy. And so you wait and wait and finally your birthday arrives and you may get the toy. Or maybe you did get the toy. But maybe you didn't. But the point is, you believed as your birthday approached that you actually would get the toy. Why did you believe that? Let's say you did. Uh, and if you didn't, you can imagine this happening, I would imagine. You believe it because you want to believe it. You want to believe that you're going to get what you want, which is the toy or Maybe it was a trip to uh, an amusement park or something like that, uh, something else. But the point is, we tend to believe what we want to believe is true. That's not just true of you children. That's true of adults, too. And it can be a good thing, and it can also be a very bad thing as well. And I'm, This text we're going to look at is an example of, uh, as you'll see as we go through this, of people believing what they want to believe and not believing the right thing and how that endangers their souls as a result of their false belief in something that they wish to believe but that's not true or at least is not uh, accurate. You'll see what I'm talking about here in a moment. We do have a tendency as uh, human beings to believe what we want to believe, uh, and we have this tendency, regardless, actually, at times, of what the evidence suggests. If the evidence uh, suggests something other than what we want to believe, we'll sometimes ignore the evidence. This is a trap, and I this is not a political statement, by the way. It's just the best example that I could come up with. So this is not a political statement that I'm making here. But this trap of believing what you want to believe is a trap that many media outlets fell into uh, fairly recently uh, when they first heard about a certain laptop that purportedly had highly incriminating material on it about Hunter Biden. It's the, only, it's the best example I could come up with. That's the only reason I'm choosing this example. But many in the media, you recall, uh, uh, some number of months ago, uh, 16, 17 months ago, dismissed the contents of that laptop as Russian disinformation, you may recall, in spite of the fact that there was quite a bit of evidence suggesting that the contents of the laptop was genuine, came from the man uh, himself. Well, now, after more than a year and a half has passed, and more than a year and a half of these media outlets uh, regularly insisting that it was, in fact, disinformation, 
A number of these same media outlets have recently and finally admitted that the contents of that laptop was, in fact, authentic. Again, I remind you of this news item, not because I wish to make some kind of a political statement that's not appropriate in a pulpit in Christ's church. But I make that, bring that up because it illustrates the point that I wish to make now and that throughout this sermon, and that is we humans have a bad habit of believing what we want to believe in spite of evidence to the contrary. And we do this because we're sinners, which means our hearts are corrupted by sin. And as sinners, we are prone to deceive ourselves if we are not careful to believe our own lies. That leads me to the two points of this passage that I want to uh, bring to your attention from this passage that summarize the passage, I hope. They are these. Because of our sinful tendency to believe what we want to believe, we need to be careful not to believe in a Messiah, a Christ, of our own making. And secondly, this text teaches us that because of our sinful tendency to believe what we want to believe, we need to be careful to believe in the Messiah described in the Bible. So first, because of that sinful proclivity of ours to believe things we want to believe, even when the evidence points to the contrary, we need to be careful not to believe in a false Christ, a false Jesus, which many, many people down through the last 2,000 years have believed in and are now in hell because of it. They have believed in a false Christ, a false Messiah. Messiah merely means anointed one, which is the... Uh, the Hebrew way of saying uh, anointed one, the Greek way is Christos, where we get the word Christ from. They mean exactly the same thing. So we need to be careful not to embrace a false Messiah, to believe in a false Messiah because it's convenient or we like this Messiah better than the one the Bible offers. Being careful not to believe in the wrong Messiah is something that the Jewish people of Jesus' day as at least the, the, the majority of Jewish people in Jesus' day failed to do, to not believe in a false Messiah. They ended up, many of them, embracing a different Messiah than the one that the Old Testament told them was coming. Their idea, that is the majority of the Jewish people of Jesus' day, their idea of what the Messiah would look like, it was based on Scripture, actually, at least in part, But half-truth is not the truth. And what they believed was a half-truth, you could say. It was true, though, what they believed. They believed he was the king of Israel, as we as we uh, saw there in their, what they shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they understood uh, that this was their king. Um, 
And they're quoting there, by the way, that, uh, that uh, passage I just read to you is a quote from Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. It's a distinctly messianic psalm. That is, it clearly is a very clear psalm pointing to, and really all the psalms do, but some of them more obviously than others, and Psalm 118 is one of those. Very obviously speaks of the Messiah, who was then... Uh, 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 better part of a thousand years away in time, in terms of from the time the psalm was written to the time when Jesus actually came. But anyway, Psalm uh, 118 is clearly distinctly messianic, and it is a psalm, Psalm 118, was a psalm that the Jews always sang at the Feast of Passover. It was part of the celebration of the feast, of the Jewish Feast of Passover. And they'd been doing this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before this incident that occurred uh, when Jesus was there. And that passage, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, um, they were using it, uh, and they were saying it when Jesus was uh, riding into town, to indicate their belief that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, the promised one, that God had promised uh regularly promised throughout the pages of the Old Testament to send to deliver God's people. And they accurately understood Jesus is that Messiah promised in that passage, Psalm 118. And the passage did indeed point to the man who was riding before them into town, into Jerusalem that day. The problem was, the problem was that Though many, if not all, but many of those folks that lined that uh, way uh, into town uh, from the east side of Jerusalem into Jerusalem that were there as Jesus is walking, uh, going by on the donkey, uh, the colt rather. The problem was that these, many of these folks, most of these folks failed to take all of the Old Testament data into account when formulating their idea of what the Messiah would be like. Their use, in other words, of the Old Testament scriptures to construct their mental image of what the, of the Messiah was going to be like, it was selective use. And when they did cite the scriptures of the Old Testament, various ones that they preferred to think of when they thought of the Messiah, they would sometimes tweak those passages they would do what's called eisegesis and read into those passages kind of what they wanted to believe those passages were teaching. It's a danger that we have today when we read our Bible, all of us. Exegesis is what you want to do. Eisegesis is what you must avoid when you're reading your Bible. Exegesis is to pull out of the text what it's actually, what the author intends for it to be teaching you. Eisegesis is to import into a passage what you want it to say. That's what the cults do. They import meanings that aren't there because they want to believe what they want to believe, right? Being careful not to believe in a Messiah of our own, our own making is something that many, many people in our own day fail to do, being careful not to believe the wrong thing. They fail to do that. They believe something other than the truth. 
This is true of people outside of the visible church. By visible church, I don't mean this building. I don't mean our denomination. I, I mean all Christian churches that where the Christian gospel is actually believed and, and more or less taught in the church. So of all the different denominational stripes. Uh, but this is true. Many people fail to, uh, uh, to not believe the wrong thing. It's true outside of the visible church and inside of the visible church. So outside of the visible church, Lots of people in the world who have nothing to do with Christianity, but when they think of what the Bible says or what they think Christianity means, they think of Jesus as a a great charismatic leader. But nothing more. Or they think of him as a great teacher, but nothing more. Or they think of him as a great prophet of God. This is what the Muslims think about Jesus. But that's all he is, is a great prophet of God, but not as great as Muhammad. Or they think of him as a clever, brilliant man. Um, But nothing more. That's people outside of the church who fool themselves. But guess what? There are lots of people in the visible church who fool themselves as well, who believe wrong things about about Christ give you a few examples. Lots of people in the church today who think of Jesus as their buddy. Now, yes, Jesus is the Christian's friend. But he is also the God, the second person of the Godhead who is a consuming fire. You don't treat the God-man while he is your friend. You don't treat him as your pal, your buddy-buddy, and talk to him in a way that is Familiar in the way that you would your buddy. But a lot of people do. And they think of Jesus and treat Jesus that way. And don't take into account all the other biblical data that says he must be treated as holy. As well as our friend, like he was Abraham's. He is our friend. But he's more than that. He's our God. And our Redeemer and so on. Another thing that people inside the church mistake uh, when they uh, mistake that they make when they think about Jesus uh, is there are many people inside the visible church who think of Jesus as a savior whose only attribute is love. Because after all, John said God is love, right? Jesus is God, God, Jesus is love. And that's all they want to think about. He's only love. Because the Bible doesn't actually say literally in, in words, Jesus is justice. Jesus is holiness. Jesus is wrath. All of which are true, by the way, and are taught by the scriptures. They just don't have a phrase like, like God is love, which we actually have in First John. But there are Christians who that's all they want to think of him is. He's just a big ball of love. That's a mis... Uh, that's a perversion of Christianity. It's a half-truth. Actually, it's a quarter-truth, or less than that. Another um, false Jesus that uh, people inside of the visible church have fallen into uh, believing, uh, convinced themselves because they want to believe this about Jesus, is that he is a Savior whose forgiveness can be earned by the individual himself. Uh, he's a God who, uh, and a Savior who, through uh, keeping the Ten Commandments, uh, we can earn by our keeping the Ten Commandments 
through this Jesus, we can earn God's forgiveness. Or we can earn God's forgiveness through tithing, giving money at church, or through being a member of a church, or through um, receiving a, the, the, the sign of baptism, or through speaking in tongues, or whatever. That somehow these are ways that we can earn God's favor, Jesus' favor, and, and that's, in fact, how we get into heaven, is by our being obedient to Jesus uh, most of the time. False Jesus. Even though as Christians we are to obey, but it's as an expression of forgiveness, of, of uh, thanksgiving to God and love for God that we do it because we never do it perfectly and so our obedience can never earn us God's forgiveness. Only Jesus' perfect obedience can earn our forgive, God's forgiveness of us. So that's another false Jesus. Some truth in there, but it's a half-truth, which means it's not the truth. We must be careful not to believe things uh, sinfully to believe in uh, a Jesus that we want to believe in who isn't the biblical Jesus. Because why is that a problem? Why is it such a problem? Because, folks, the only Jesus capable of reconciling a sin-hating God to sinners such as you and me is the Messiah described in here. Fully, with all the data that's said about him, in here. That's the Messiah who saves. That's the Messiah who will get you to heaven. No other Messiah will. They are all false figments of men's imaginations. Uh, No other one is capable of rescuing hell-deserving sinners. That's all of us. We all deserve hell for our rebellion against God. One one sin, which is is rebellion, uh, lands a person in hell, uh, will land a person in hell for eternity. Uh, One act of disobedience against God, and we've all disobeyed God countless times. We all deserve hell. Without Jesus, we're all going to go there. But with Jesus, the true Jesus, the true Messiah, we will not, because Jesus endured our hell for us on the cross. But we have to have the right Jesus, you see. We have to believe in, we have to trust in the right Christ. That is... The second point, because of our sinful tendency to believe what we want to believe, uh, not only do we need to be careful not to believe in the Messiah of our own making, we need to be careful to believe in the scriptural Messiah. The Messiah described to us in the pages of Holy Writ. All of those pages, by the way. This is what our Savior, the Lord Jesus, was trying to get the people of his day to do. To believe, and on this occasion in particular that we're reading about here in chapter 12, is to help them to believe in the right Messiah. I mentioned, as I mentioned already, the crowd here on Palm Sunday, we'll call it that, even though that's not, uh, yeah, that's just an imported term, but that crowd on the Sunday before Jesus was killed had welcomed, as I already indicated, Jesus as Israel's Messiah, Messianic King. He called, they called him the King of Israel. Um, uh, but they welcomed him as Messiah with their own ideas of what the Messiah would do as they were welcoming him as that Messiah. You see, they assumed, the majority of them, not all of them, but the probably the vast majority of them there that day, assumed that Jesus was going to be the Messiah who would be a military political leader who would 
restore the dignity of the Davidic, the Davidic dynasty of Israel of old, who would make Jerusalem his forever everlasting capital and who would deliver the Jewish people from their Roman oppressors. That's what the vast majority of the people there, or the majority of the people there that day, and in Jerusalem that day for the feast, almost certainly believed Messiah was. A political military leader. But this is not the kind of portrait that the Old Testament paints of the Messiah, of God's anointed. It's not. Now, there is a shade of, there's an element of truth to it, because God does portray him uh, and the Old Testament does portray him as a victor, as a warrior. And so there is that truth there. But again, some truth without the full truth is not the truth. The scriptures had indeed portrayed, uh, the, the people had indeed had called uh, Jesus the King of Israel, and Jesus had no desire to repudiate the title to say, no, no, that's not true of me. He had no desire to do that on this day. That title, King of Israel, was true. The Old Testament scriptures, uh, in more than one place, I'm going to read one of them for you in a moment, had portrayed the coming Messiah as a king. One of them is Isaiah 9, uh, 6 and 7, which is often read at Christmas time about Jesus, that he was going to be uh, the king. Uh, but the one I'm going to read today is Psalm uh, 110, Verses 1 through 3, which is a very, again, another one of those very, very obviously messianic psalms um, in the Old Testament, or in the Psalter, rather. And so let me read that in verses 1, verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 110. So keep in mind, David is the author of this psalm, and we not only know this because of the superscription there that says the psalm of David, but, but the Old Testament, I mean, excuse me, the New Testament confirms that David was the author of this psalm. And that's divinely inspired, of course, we know the New Testament is, and it says in a couple places that David wrote this psalm. So, David's speaking, and he says, the Lord says to my Lord. So, two different lords here, um, which means two different persons. Um, and the first Lord is, the, is obviously the Father, and the second Lord is, as you'll see in a moment, is, is the Son, Jesus, after he's incarnate. Um, <clears throat> the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So he's speaking to Jesus, the Father speaking to the Son after the, uh, at the resurrection, um, presumably is where this takes place. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. That happened at the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Verse 2, The Lord will stretch forth thy, the other Lord's, strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of thine enemies. Jesus is now ruling in the midst of his enemies here on earth and in the, in the universe, uh, in, the, in the world. Thy people will volunteer, volunteer freely in the day of thy power, in holy array from the womb of the dawn, the youth are to thee as the dew. And he goes on and talks about Jesus' priesthood in the next section there. But the point is, that first section speaks of the Messiah would be a king. And he would be Israel's king. The fact that he would be Israel's king is evident over in Isaiah 
50, 49, rather, verse 5. Isaiah 49, verse 5. Again, a messianic passage, clearly here. And he says, Now now says the Lord, who formed me, and here the me is God the Son, okay? And the Lord here is the Father. Now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, Notice, to bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. And then he goes on. But the point is, Israel there, Jacob, Israel is portrayed as going to the, the, who the Messiah will be king of. Okay? So that's true also. So he is the king of Israel. And Jesus did not want to uh, repudiate or renounce this title in any way, shape, or form. It was very appropriately belonged to him. But what Jesus did want to repudiate on this day was the military and political ideas that the crowd was associating with this title, King of Israel. And that's exactly what he was trying to do, and in fact, if anybody was paying attention, did on this day. How did he do that? by the manner in which he chose to enter into Jerusalem, the Jewish capital. In verses 14 and 15, again, of our text, And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt, from Zechariah 9.9. Messianic text again written hundreds of years, uh, 500 plus years before Jesus came, about the Messiah, about Jesus, he was going to ride in on a colt, the colt of a donkey. And what that signified, folks, was the humble behavior and ways of this Messiah. He would not come prancing into Jerusalem on the back of a great white stallion or black stallion. Huge horse, however many hands high. That I can't remember how many hands are really high, but anyway, he's my daughters would know that. Um, but he wasn't. He didn't come in on this huge galloping muscular horse with mane flying like a great military ruler of his day, of his day would have done. No, Zechariah says that the Messianic king would come plodding into Jerusalem on the back of a lowly beast of burden. Emphasis on lowly. Jesus' procurement of this young donkey on which he rode was a deliberate effort on his part to undermine undermine the crowd's false notion that he, as the Messiah, they rightly did, figured that one out, uh, but they repudiated it, many of them, that idea as the week went on, but they wanted to, he wanted to undermine their false notion that he was a Messiah, uh, that, that, that of what Messiah should be and what Messiah should do. Somehow he was supposed to be delivered them from the Romans. It was almost as if Jesus was saying to the crowds that day as he's riding on this humble beast of burden, folks, don't forget how the prophet Zechariah portrays your Messiah. 
in addition to describing him as a king, this prophet makes it clear that God's anointed would also be a very humble and down-to-earth man. Very different from the flashy, high-profile military general that you folks seem to be hoping for. Alas, most people weren't paying attention to that that day. And indeed, throughout subsequent history. Most of the Jews of that day in Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover were putting their hope and their faith in a Messiah who didn't exist. And Jesus was attempting to redirect their attention to the real concept of the real Messiah, what the scriptures actually taught, the Old Testament scriptures about who the Messiah was to be. Promised in the law and the prophets and the writings. And it was to be the Jesus, the prophet, the Messiah that Jesus himself was. Who, yes, was a great and is a great warrior. And by the way, his warrior skills will be demonstrated in the Day of Judgment when he will vanquish and destroy all of his enemies and all of the kingdoms of the earth, that uh, the rulers of the earth and as they rise have risen up against him in, in defiance. He will. But he also came, was to come first as a humble servant. He was to be and is a servant king. Not a... Um, military warrior king first and foremost in his first coming. And they, he tried, and anybody paying attention could have deduced that, you see. But many weren't paying attention. And many today aren't paying attention. So in addition to portraying Jesus in this text as a humble man, and a king of Israel who is a humble man and a servant. What else does the Old Testament say? I'm just going to, by way of very quick review here in our remaining moments here, what else does the Old Testament scripture teach us about this Messiah who was to come, who is Jesus? Well, we learn over in Isaiah 49, verse 6, the verse that I read uh, just before, the, or just after, rather, the verse I read a few moments ago. I'll read it now, Isaiah 49, 6. It teaches that Jesus would be God's servant. Um, uh, let me back up to verse 5, and then I'll read verse 6 again. Uh, Isaiah 49. And now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant. There it is in verse 5, too. To bring Jacob back to him in order that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and God is my strength. He, meaning the Lord, the Father, says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light to the nations, meaning to the Gentiles. That's us. Praise the Lord, right? I will also make you a light uh, uh, of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Notice the servant is going to bring salvation, God's salvation. It's written 740 years before Jesus was born, folks. It has his name all over it. 
Just one of many Old Testament texts that do. So this Messiah, who, yes, would one day be a victorious warrior, but he was going to be and is also God's servant. And our servant, by the way. He served us, didn't he? he Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Us. He would also not only be a humble man, as was evident on this day uh, when he came into Jerusalem, um, at the week of his death, beginning of the week of his death, but he would also at the same time be, uh, in addition to being a humble servant, he would be and is God. Jeremiah 23 makes this point. Jeremiah 23, 5. I'm not going to look all these up, but I'm going to look some of them up because there are a few others that are coming here. But Jeremiah 23, 5. Uh, we read this about the Messiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. That righteous branch is Jesus from the Davidic line. And he will reign as king. There it is again. And act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. And Israel will dwell securely. And this is spiritual Judah, spiritual Israel. And this is his name by which he will be called Messiah will be called the righteous branch. He will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And there the Lord is the divine name, Yahweh, that we often uh, mis- uh, We don't know if, how it was pronounced, but our guess is Yahweh. Uh, but it's the divine name found over in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when uh, God said his name to Moses at the, with the burning bush, in the burning bush. But he says the Messiah is going to be the Lord, God. The Bible, the Old Testament also in Deuteronomy um, 18, verses 18 and 19, indicated that Jesus would be a great prophet, greater than Moses. Over in uh, uh, Psalm 110 that I read a moment ago, uh, I didn't keep reading, but he talks about Jesus being a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Messiah is going to be a priest. Zechariah 6.13 makes the same point, as well as Psalm 110.4. The Old Testament said that the Messiah would be a priest who would offer himself up as a sacrifice. Isaiah uh, 53, in that very most famous of messianic texts in the Old Testament, 53.10, but the Lord was pleased, the Lord here is the Father, pleased to crush him, meaning the incarnate Son, putting him to grief if he would render himself, if the son would render himself as a guilt offering. And he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand, in Messiah's hand. He was going to offer himself up, uh, be crushed and offered up as a guilt offering. But the Old Testament also in that same uh, Isaiah 53 text says that he would die on behalf of others on behalf, in fact, of many, bearing both the guilt of their sin and the punishment that their sins deserve. Isaiah uh, uh, 53, verses 5 and 6. But he, the Messiah, who would be smitten of God and afflicted, he, uh, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Notice, our, our. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. The Messiah. So that sacrifice would be rendered on behalf of us. That, and the, the punishment uh, the, of, of death would be, would be done vicariously for sinners whom Jesus would represent. That is the elect. And the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, as a result of, says that as a result of this vicarious suffering of the Messiah, those for whom he would die 
would be reconciled to God. Back again to Isaiah 53, verse 11. And as a result of the anguish of his soul, Messiah's soul, whom God would crush, he, the Father, will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, meaning Christ, the Messiah, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Isn't that wonderful news, folks? And all of this was in the Old Testament when Jesus was riding in on the donkey. And people, if they were paying attention, would know this about the Messiah. But so many weren't. As is true today in the church. Visible today all too often. I hope that's not true of any of you here today. Well, it isn't after I've gone through these texts, if you've been awake. And lastly, the Old Testament indicated that this Messiah would rise from the dead. Isaiah, excuse me, Isaiah, Psalm 16 points to this fact in Psalm 16, verses 9 and 10. Messianic Psalm again, very clearly Messianic Psalm. Therefore my heart, Jesus speaking here, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For thou, the Father, wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, to death. Neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Jesus is the Holy One. Thou wilt make known to me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. Pointing to the resurrection, to life of his flesh that didn't undergo decay. See, all this is in the Old Testament. This is an accurate portrayal of the true Messiah who was and is Jesus Christ. And the Messiah that I've just described to you from the Scriptures is the only Messiah capable of saving you from hell and me from hell. Of reconciling us who are sinners to a sin-hating God and judge but who is also a gracious, indescribably gracious God, who is willing to forgive those who deserve his judgment. But they must look to Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the true Christ, the true Messiah. Is this the Messiah in whom you have put your faith? Or not? Do you have a fanciful Messiah, who approves of all your sinful proclivities and isn't going to give you any hassles about them. See, that Messiah will land you in hell. Because he's a false, he's a figment of your imagination if you have that Messiah. The only Savior who saves, who rescues sinners like ourselves from hell, an eternity's worth of wrath and hell, and gets us to heaven. The only Savior that does that is this one that I have described to you, who is 100% man and 100% God and is the only way to God. You must have him or you will die eternally and suffer the wrath of God eternally, which is what all of us deserve. Not a one of us doesn't deserve that. That includes you little children, by the way. 
Are you believing in the true Jesus? If you believe in Jesus, that Jesus, who is your only hope, my only hope, then you can know that you are forgiven. You must believe, by the way, only in Him. You can't believe in Him plus something else, hoping to earn through something you've done, be it submit to baptism or join a church or give money or whatever, that somehow something that you have done is going to help get you into heaven. If you believe, if you add that to Jesus, you lose Jesus. And all you, all you have is your efforts, your, your paltry efforts to earn God's favor. And you will, that will not, you will not fare well, by the way, on the day of judgment, if that's the case. You can't add something to Jesus. You must look to Jesus' perfect obedience unto death for you alone. And that's the only way you will get uh, a, um, a verdict of not only innocent, but righteous from God. And thus will be allowed into heaven. It's the only way. Do you have that, Jesus? Don't fool yourself. Don't pretend like, oh, well, sure, sure I do. Yeah, 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 I do. No, don't, don't, don't just dismiss what I'm saying as if, well, yeah, 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 I've heard all that. Ask yourself. This is the most important thing you'll ever think of in your entire life, what I'm telling you right now. Don't get it wrong. And if you find that you're not a Christian, that you really haven't been believing and trusting only in this Jesus that I've just described to you, the only Savior of sinners is 100% God and 100% man, then what you need to do is you need to flee to him. What I mean by that is not physically run. I mean flee to him by trusting in him, saying, Jesus, save me. I'm lost. I'm going to hell without you. Save me. And then he will. He has promised to save all those who come to him in faith, confessing their sins and saying, Jesus, save me from my sins and the punishment that my sins deserve. And he will do that. Because he promises, and God keeps his word. You can bank your eternal destiny on it, but you must come in faith, and faith alone, to apprehend that Christ, who is the true Christ, who is Jesus of Nazareth. May God give you the grace to do it if you haven't. And if you have done it, you haven't done that because you were so smart, or because you were so worthy, or because you have blonde hair and blue eyes, or brown hair and brown eyes, or come from a good family or whatever. It's only purely of grace that you're a Christian here today if you're a Christian. And if you come to Christ as a result of what you heard today, it will be only of God's grace that you did that, not because you were, you, uh, were, you know, um, made the right decision. It's not your decision that gets you into heaven. It's the grace of God through Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you're a God of grace as well as a God of blinding holiness and justice. And because you are a God of infinite grace who gives infinite grace to those whom you wish to show grace to, that we, the likes of us, rebels against your law, against your will, we can spend eternity, which begins in this life when we trust in your Son. We can spend eternity with you, being blessed, wildly blessed for all eternity because of that grace of yours that 
calls us out of the darkness and called us out of the darkness. Lord, for those of us who are Christians, would you give us much joy and much gratitude and much love, more love for you because of this wonderful work of grace that you've done for us in our lives through Christ. And for the person, if there is any, who is listening to me in this room or remotely, who has never really understood that this Jesus that they have heard of this morning is the only hope they have of not suffering for eternity, horrific wrath. Would you please give such a one who has now come to understand that the true Jesus is the one that I've spoken of, would you give such a one faith, the gift of faith, to willingly and joyfully believe, trust in Jesus of Nazareth, the God-man and the only Savior of sinners. Give such grace today, we ask, to those individuals to whom it applies. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Please stay for our fellowship.